1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg
1: experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. I've been in the equity research game a long time on Wall Street, and ever since I've been on the street, the folks at Keefe, Brett, and Woods have been the axe in banking stocks. And what I like about their research, um, it's big cap and it's small cap, and they cover it all. And if you want to get really smart on the banking biz, you go to those folks at KBW. They're now a Steifel company. Chris McGrady joins us. He's head of U.S. Bank Research. Chris, give us a sense of what your banking call is right here um, You know, for just the sector in general. People are seeing interest rates rise, to lay people like me, that's a good thing for interest rate margin, but give us the expert call.
3: Sure, uh, thanks for having me on.
1: Um, yeah, at, at the highest level,
3: um, higher rates are, are actually very good for the banking industry. One of the few sectors of the economy where rates uh, moving higher will actually expand profit margins. Um, and so our call on the group has been for the past year that you want to own the banks. Uh, we, we made a call last September that we saw loan demand returning after after a couple of years of of absence, we saw rates poised to move higher. And we really thought the balance sheets were in great shape. So you put those factors together and what you're seeing now is revenue growth accelerating and and that's leading to um,
4: recently some better performance in the group.
2: So um, do you expect it to continue? I mean, how difficult is it to to look out as the fed um, kind of fights the market or the market's fighting the fed? which Paul says they shouldn't do.
3: Yeah, visibility is tough, right? The markets can change on a dime. Um, and as you've seen over the past few days, um, inflation expectations um, coming down a bit has actually put a bid into the market. And so um, visibility is is improving. Um, and, and right now, we believe that revenue growth is poised to accelerate, particularly for the mid-cap banks. Um, so you have the largest banks, which have capital markets pressures, and those and those revenues are really and have been in a recession for the past couple quarters. If you go down cap to your earlier comments, we see some really strong growth uh, emerging, and we saw it this past quarter, and we see it for the next several quarters. So so we think even though inflationary pressures are with us, we think revenue growth will accelerate and exceed that, and what you're going to see is expanding profit margins.
2: What, what about headcount? You know, I was just uh, walking back from the gym with a guy who was on the buy side for the last 30 years, and he's now shifted over. Um, to investment banking just because he saw the layoffs coming and he says everybody on the street sees it?
3: You know, uh, right now, talent—you know good talent is hard to come by. And so right now, um, the employees have a lot of leverage. Um, you know, what we've seen over the past year is wage pressures increase. Um, and there may be, you know, this is a cyclical industry. There could be layoffs over, over the cycle. But right now, the, the, the industry is fairly profitable. They're fairly efficient. And they're figuring out how to work in a world where it's um, where remote is part of the part of the uh,
2: part of the narrative. Hang on, Paul. Weren't we just talking about with Chanali about bonuses? Like last year, everybody was like, "Pay me double." or Pay I me across the street, <laughs> right, Exactly. And this year, it's like, uh, "Please give me what you gave me last year."
1: Yeah. If if you're is lucky. that
2: not the case, Chris? You,
3: you know, talent's always going to be in demand. If, if if good talent, we always want to pay pay for talent. Um, but uh, there, you know, there's still choices out there. Uh, mobility is pretty high. But, um, you know, but talent is, is something that, um, that is at a premium right now, for sure.
1: Hey, Chris, you know what? I'm really a fan of kind of the, you know, the small cap, the regional banks, the mid-cap banks. And I know for that business model, loan growth is a big revenue driver. Talk to us about loan growth out there. Are we seeing good signs? Where is it?
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, what we've seen over the past several quarters is it's building in the economy of, of loan demand. And part of it's coming out of COVID. Part of it's inventory is being rebuilt. But what we saw last quarter uh, and what we see into the back half of the year is we're seeing solid double-digit loan growth. Uh, and so you put that together with the benefit of higher rates, and you get this uh, dynamic, a one-two punch of, of accelerating revenue growth. So, um, you know, there are questions about whether we are late cycle and whether the bank should should be growing this quickly. But we've been in such an unusual period. Where loan demand hasn't been with us, that uh, that we're finally starting to see it, and we think we think the banks have learned a lesson in, uh, in terms of underwriting and the quality of the loans they're putting on their balance sheet.
1: Chris, Villanova, how's their? I know you played baseball there. How's the hoops team going to be this year? <laughs> it's a transition year. Transition uh, you know. year. Wait a minute, that's what you some companies say about you know their. You can't do a transition year at Villanova. By by the way, what was it like playing? college baseball i've always been it's kind
2: of mysterious because everybody plays either basketball or football you know maybe soccer if you're kind of a stoner but what's the (laughs) baseball crowd like because i've always wondered about that
3: you know it's a a great group of guys um but uh but make no mistake about it. it's a basketball school um it's been a basketball school and and we are going to have a good year for the basketball team it's just our expectations we've been spoiled over the past decade with jay
1: Yeah, Jay Wright, the great, great coach, uh, retired kind of unexpectedly there. I wonder where he's going to land next. Uh, Chris McGrady, thanks so much for joining us. He's head of U.S. Bank Research, and that means something, folks, because KBW, they are focused exclusively on the banking sector research uh, and investment banking. Uh, KBW now is a Stiefel company, and Stiefel's a good regional investment bank that maybe some people don't know of, but uh, they've been growing. They focus on kind of the midsize companies out there, Good investment banking, good research, and their acquisition of KBW made them an instant player in covering all things financial services, so good getting Chris McGrady on there.
5: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie?
1: Maxims I learned early on in my career is don't fight the tape and don't fight the Fed. Well, the Fed's raising rates, not good. But the tape has been going up for the last four or five, six weeks. I don't know what's going on, but hopefully our next guest does. Lizzie Evans, managing partner, Evans May Wealth. Uh, She got her undergraduate degree from Indiana University, so maybe she can tell us, Matt. What a hoosier is, because I have no idea what a <laughs> no hoosier is. No one knows what a hoosier, hoosier is. is. Lizzie, what are you doing with this market here? What are you telling your clients here?
6: Good morning, Paul and Matt. Excited to be here. Um, this, you know, I think that we've seen what's, you know, what's the outlook for the markets. We've seen a very welcome reprieve in the markets over the last six weeks to really just a absolutely brutal first half of the year. But you know, I think that um, we are certainly cautiously optimistic for the, for the second half of the year, but I expect we'll, we'll, volatility is here to stay. I think we'll have a lot of volatility surrounding inflation and economic data points. So, from an investment standpoint, I think you have to be very selective and you have to focus on quality, know what you own, know why you own it.
2: Alright, so what is quality out there? What do, what do you want to focus on?
6: I think you need, to, you, know, you need to be careful about making a broad call about the market or a sector style of investment. You, you know, I think if you think about how dollars will be spent if the economy continues to soften, what, what, are, what will customers cut, what won't they cut, what will CFOs or business line managers cut, what won't they cut. So in essence, you want to have companies that are the best most indispensable businesses in their particular sector or industry.
1: All right, Lizzie. I mean, I think I'm probably like a lot of investors where my investment outlook has kind of been shaped by the whole time period following the great financial crisis when my portfolio did great because I just own Apple and Amazon and the Microsoft, the big growth names. And then there was this rotation into some of the cyclical names, maybe the reopening trades. I don't know, but I'm still... I think I just feel more comfortable innately owning those big cap growth names. Are those the companies you're talking about? Do you like my strategy?
6: Well I think I I do I like the big uh, you know particularly how much a lot of the big mega cap tech stocks have been hit since the first of the year you you look at Microsoft. Microsoft's 20% off its high. Amazon's 27% off its high. Google's 23% off its high. Now Disney had a great report um, they're really, you know, finally showing signs of some resiliency both across parks and, and Disney Plus or streaming, 49% off its high. So I think there's certainly some companies that offer attractive values, but you know, I think you want to be careful about moving in or out of. Oh, do you have growth names, and then do you go into a more defensive play? I think you need to have a balance because just like timing the market. You can't time when a style of investment or a sector will outperform. So the key is to know the companies you have and be selective as opposed to just making, you know, a broad call across a a style or um, a sector. Is
2: the Fed driving this market? I mean, is it all about the Fed or um, is it really the underlying economy and earnings?
6: I think all eyes have been on the Fed, you know, all year. Certainly the CPI, PPI figures we've seen this week are encouraging. You know, for the last six weeks, if you look at the softening in commodities future pricing, we thought we had seen peak inflation. So I think that's certainly that combined with a good earnings season and really the market thinking we are going to have somewhat of a a catastrophic earnings season has been positive. But, um, you know, I think there is still uncertainty as it relates to the Fed. There's still uncertainty geopolitically, um, there, there's a lot of risks out there. So you know, I think that right now we're somewhat in a sideways trading pattern, and we're, we're likely going to be there I- until the fall when we have some more certainty. So to your earlier point, know what you own, know why you own it, own companies that are going to continue to do well, even in periods of time when there is prolonged economic slowdown.
1: All right, Lizzie, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts there. Lizzie Evans, managing partner for Evans May Wealth. When you think about the last seven days, pretty good news on the uh, economic front. We've had uh, good jobs number. We've had some better than expected inflation data, both at the consumer and producer level. And then today we get the University of Michigan uh, sentiment survey came in. Better than expected and a nice improvement month to month. So for a lot of market participants, a lot of market watchers, the question now becomes, what does this economic data mean to our Federal Reserve? And is there a way for them to screw it up, maybe? Vince Signorella, global macro strategist from Bloomberg News. Hey, Vince, do you have any opinion on this?
4: Uh, just a little. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's get, let's take a look at the fed's track record and forecasting and Paul you've been on the street if uh, if you traded like that would would you have lasted long in the trading room no. i don't think so <laughs> uh neither would i <laughs> i think we would have probably gotten the hook after about 3 months of losses because that's what the fed forecasts would have resulted in I I, I just want to make a point. to This, I think, is a really serious point that no one on the street is talking about at all. No one in the media is talking about. Today, on a CNBC interview, Barkin was asked about the balance sheet. And he gave maybe the most NSS answer for the summer when he said, we must believe the balance sheet shrinking has a tightening effect. The real question is, what is that tightening effect? And every time a Fed representative is asked that question, they said, we don't know. So how, in the face of lower inflation data, do you continue to hike rates blindly without knowing how the Fed's balance sheet shrinking is going to tighten rates? Because they will tighten financial conditions. I find that just unconscionable.
2: They always say it's a blunt instrument, right? But it is still shocking to hear that the Fed knows so little about um, the effects of its you know, own tools. And, and
4: that's that's actually not correct. the The fact that it's a blunt instrument is because they're in the in the belly of the curve, not in the short end of the curve. We grew up with. Um, repurchase agreements and reverse repurchase agreements, which is what the Fed did, New York Fed did, almost on a weekly basis to try to control money supply. Or realistically, the, 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 the base, monetary base, the Fed doesn't really control money supply. And they would do that almost on a weekly basis. And Fed funds traders always took that as an indication of whether the Fed was leaning a little bearish or leaning uh, uh, or leading leaning dovish. Um, it's not a blunt instrument. Raising the Fed funds rate is the blunt instrument. It's it's shocking to me the policy they're using to try to control this.
1: So, Vince, what do you think, given the economic data we've seen recently, what do you think the Federal Reserve should do?
4: I think they should be continuing to reduce the balance sheet. I think a, a really good option for them would be to do a reverse operation twist and bring their purchases into the short end of the curve where they belong not into the belly of the curve, and then they have two choices. If they think things are, are should should be tightened, they can let those short end maturities just roll off very comfortably. If they think the economy needs help, they can repurchase them very easily in the short end of the curve, and get the heck out of the middle of the market where they don't belong. Let the market set rates where medium term rates should be.
2: So, and why don't they? I mean,
4: I, I have no clue to be honest. I really don't. I I, I don't see how they they keep commenting uh, that. You know, they, they keep talking about inflation, and we need to see multiple prints. Well, the last print was zero, no inflation. So keep hiking rates in the face of rolling over inflation. You know, you have daily saying it's structural. How did it become structural in six months? We, we've we had zero inflation for 15 years. Six months In six months of inflation, now it's structural. <laughs> it makes no sense. I mean, it
1: makes no sense. All right, Vince, I this can't... is my suggestion to you. Call Tom Keene. book a seat on the surveillance Gulfstream going out to Jackson Hole and see if you can talk some sense into these folks. What do you think?
4: I, I You know, if they would let me, I would. But I, I think they would probably want to just bury me somewhere in the background. They wouldn't want me anywhere near these guys.
2: Somewhere out in the desert. It, it, and- is <laughs> there, And if you put your trader hat on, is there a way for investors to make money in this market if they, like you, think the Fed is completely off base?
4: Yeah, I think there's a great opportunity. I think there's a couple of things we're going to say. I think we're seeing producer prices fall faster than the prices that are being passed along. We're seeing a, a real nice movement this morning that no one's talking about of how import prices and export prices are dropping considerably. That's profitable for companies on both sides of the coin, especially the large caps, because as the market continues to gain, the dollar is going to fall. And that's going to give them some more leverage because those fellows just don't hedge, and whenever the dollar goes up, they lose money. So a reversal of that trend going into the fourth quarter, I think, is going to be positive for earnings. I think it's going to be positive for stocks. And the folks who are watching this rally and continue to call it a bear market rally, I think are going to be chasing this all the way through December, trying to get their their books looking a little bit more like S&P returns because they're going to miss this book.
2: So, so you're a bull despite the fact that the Fed... Um, continues on its hiking path, or you think that the Fed is going to, ex- at some point, um, turn tail and run back down?
4: I, I, think, I think after September, they're going to realize they've made another policy mistake and just stop. Um, there, there's really no reason to raise 75 basis points in September. I believe they will. And I believe the best trade on the street after September is going to be to buy the short end, because when the Fed realizes they they've pushed it too far... Um, the the short end of the curve is going to rally because they don't need to be this aggressively oversold, expecting the Fed to continue to raise raise rates.
1: So the two year right now is let's call it three point two five percent. Where do you think that goes mm-hmm. by the end of the year?
4: I think for sure back below three percent. It needs to be closer to two point seven five percent. I think you'll actually see something of an inversion between the Fed funds rate and the two year yield when as the market is, is tries to tell the Fed and insist to the Fed that it's too tight. They could very well push this economy into a recession, and if they do so, they will start to reverse, and there's no way that the two-year yields stay at these levels. Longer end May. I mean, there's there's no real rush to lower, to be going out into 10 years and, and buying at, at you know, 28 know 2.75%. Um, but to, to have a two-year, at three-and-a-quarter inverted with 10s, uh, doesn't make sense to me.
2: But has the Fed always been um, this political? H- has there ever been um, – I know there have been, like, high-level economists at the Fed, obviously, um, even in recent memory. But what about traders? I mean, has anybody in there ever said done?
4: No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. With all due respect to the Federal Reserve, they're glorified academics. I mean, they're college professors. They, they start out that way, they become an economist, and then they end up back in college teaching. Or unless you're lucky like Bernanke or Clarida, you join the 1% and go work for PIMCO.
2: Well, or, <laughs> I mean, Powell also wasn't uh, a professor, right? No, no. He's probably the only one on the
4: board. But, you know, I, I think he's – I think they're so petrified they're going to be tattooed with the with the Burns – A Fed situation of the 70s, which really let inflation get out of control. And you have to remember the difference between those two times is significant because Burns was very political. Every time something in CPI started to rise, he instructed the economists at the Fed to take it out of the equation.
1: Yep. All right, Vince. Awesome stuff. As always, I mean, that is a strong, bullish call there. Very clear by the short end. Uh, he's saying he's going to see some good fourth quarter earnings as well. We'll see here. Vince Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg News with his hot take on these markets.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
1: Let's go to our next guest, Hugh Johnson. He's chairman of Hugh Johnson Economics. Hugh, I was just mentioning you, boy, the last seven days starting with the jobs data and then the inflation data, and today with the UMish sentiment. If I'm the economy, I'm feeling pretty good here. What's, what's your takeaway?
7: Well, it's pretty important, and it's important, obviously, because one of the big focuses has been on, obviously, what the Federal Reserve is going to do in the future. Most importantly, probably September. The focus is on September, and the question is 75 basis points or 50 basis points, and then, of course, what happens after that, particularly when we get to 2023. That's really going to determine the outcome for the economy, and and candidly, the, the, the numbers that we're getting, Uh, Not so much the employment numbers, which were very good or very strong, and I think they've got to soften up, and they will soften up. But obviously the inflation numbers were well below expectations. Uh, No matter which inflation number you look at, consumer prices and producer prices, uh, the export and import prices today, uh, softer than expected. And the question is, will the Federal Reserve respond to those softer numbers? Uh, Keep in mind, uh, those were softer numbers for... Uh, the month in July, we're going to see the August numbers in September before that meeting. And I might add, importantly, that uh, taking a look at some of the more recent sort of data on commodity prices, and particularly food prices, agriculture prices, and non-agriculture prices, you might get some more numbers, inflation numbers, for the month of August in the middle of September, just before the September 21st meeting that are also very good or very soft, soft consumer price index numbers, uh, not only the month, but also on a year-over-year basis. So, the Fed, the Fed's going to have uh, to grapple with some really, really a tough decisions. September's going to be a tough decision.
2: Well, um, we were just talking to Vin Signorella. He says he still expects the Fed to go 75. Even if they go 50, um, they're still on a pretty steep rate rise uh, rate hiking path, can they hold that up if these numbers continue to soften, especially if the um, GDP numbers get softer into 2023, or will they have to cut?
7: Uh, let's not say cut yet, let's just say uh, reduce uh, the number of uh, increases. The real question is, I think first of all, I think 75 basis points is too much in September and when we get there it'll end up being 50. But it's a tough call, obviously. I think 50. And the question is, and I think we'll see 25 in November and 25 in December. Really, I think the question is, is when we get into 2023. And right now, the consensus expectation or guess is that they're going to start to reduce rates when we get to the second quarter, maybe the third quarter. And I think that's probably a good call, because I think we're going to see more better inflation numbers or inflation numbers that get more towards their target. Forget the 2% target, but just inflation numbers that are better. And most importantly, you're going to get in employment numbers, uh, which is the best measure of the economy. You're going to get employment numbers that are going to soften and soften quite a bit as we uh, move through 2022 and 2023. They're going to, it's certainly in the in the room of public opinion, they're certainly going to be left with, I think, no option except to either Put a hold on rates, or probably start to reduce in the second quarter of 2023. Uh, things are slowing down. The economy is slowing down. Inflation is going to be coming down, and they're all headed in the right direction. But this is going to be this is going to be a really tough economy for the remainder of 2022 and 2023. It's going to be a kind of an on again, off again, one soft landing after another soft landing, maybe a hard landing in there somewhere in some of the quarters.
1: All right, Hugh, great, great stuff. As always, you've been doing this a long time. You've got great perspective, um, and we always appreciate you taking some time and sharing that with us. Hugh Johnson, chairman of Hugh Johnson Economics.
7: All
1: right, let's talk a little healthcare, maybe a little biotech. Some smart people there. Boy, they really delivered. I'm saying they, they being the healthcare industry, the pharma industry, the biotech industry. Man, on this... COVID 19 vaccines. I mean, how good were those folks there? So, you got to give them props as we do. Daphne Zohar, founder and CEO of Pure Tech Health, joins us. Daphne, thanks for taking the time to check in with us. Talk to us about what Pure Tech Health is. What are you guys doing over there?
8: Hi, Paul and Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. So, uh, Pure Tech is a biopharma company that's dedicated to changing the treatment paradigm for patients by bringing forward new classes of medicines that address devastating diseases.
2: So, like what? I mean, when I think of the worst, cancer obviously is up there, but Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are close behind.
8: Yes. Yeah, so we've been working on some really serious diseases, like, for example, oncology. Um, we have been working on uh, schizophrenia, for example. One of the uh, programs that we invented uh, and which we advanced through a company called Karuna just had really stellar results this week. Uh, which we believe could be game-changing for patients living with schizophrenia. There's 21 million people in the world uh, who have schizophrenia, and many of the existing drugs have significant uh, issues. That um, and and this new treatment actually offers both uh, potentially improved efficacy, but also. Um, really doesn't have the debilitating side effects that that those other treatments have.
2: The side effects are they just sort of turn into zombies when they take the medicine, right?
8: Yeah, and also really significant weight gain. And, you know, if you you think about it, a lot of times schizophrenia gets diagnosed in uh, early adulthood, and, you know, people can gain 30 to 50 pounds on some of the existing uh, medications. So... Uh, this is, you know, we believe, in, and many others believe, potentially a big breakthrough. And it all started uh, at PureTech, and when we were looking at schizophrenia, and, um, and this is something that we've done multiple times, is that we'll look at an area, work with some of the leading experts, and, and really think of where we can build on validated biology, uh, but have an invented step that really unlocks a new class of medicine, and what I'm proud to say is, is in terms of our track record of clinical development, our record of clinical success is now you know, five times the industry average, and we've now taken 27 new therapeutics and therapeutic candidates forward, of which um, 16 are in the clinic, and two have been granted uh, FDA and new regulatory approvals. So I'd, I'd love to say more about PureTech, but also happy to talk about the industry, its a, such an exciting area and as you mentioned uh, the industry was able to really change people's lives in areas like vaccines uh, but we're also there are many other major needs including you know for example oncology alzheimer's disease as you mentioned parkinson's rare diseases childhood pediatric diseases so it's an industry that is one that's really cool to work in because we get to work on these big problems with smart people as you said Uh, and And it's created huge value for patients, but I think also poised to outperform for investors generally.
2: So, Are we going to see cures in our lifetime for these big diseases? I mean, is something like schizophrenia or uh, cancer curable?
8: Yeah, well, I mean, I think what we've seen is a a tremendous improvement in uh, moving, for example, many forms of cancer from what were previously fatal um, to now, you know, chronic. Uh, conditions so people you know are able to live with these conditions longer and you know we've seen for example companies like vertex cure cystic fibrosis in the case of um, schizophrenia i think this is uh, what we saw this week uh, which i I think also really will will impact the sector uh, is something that could really change the lives of the 21 million people who are living with schizophrenia. So I think definitely making
1: a change in people's lives. Hey, Daphne, one of the things I noticed, at least uh, with this whole COVID and the vaccines and was the speed with which they were able to get to market. And does this mark a change perhaps in how the FDA will approve treatments, therapeutics, vaccines, i.e. make it faster for some of these products to get to market, to get the testing and all that kind of stuff?
8: I think what we've seen is that FDA can move really quickly when it's necessary and they're able to prioritize areas of importance. And recently, for example, we saw that uh, FDA sent really positive regulatory signals to uh, key areas of our sector. For example, the nher 2 breast cancer drug was approved in two weeks. uh, And part of that was thanks to the cancer moonshot. So we see FDA able to move quickly uh, when necessary. But I also think what we saw with COVID is The industry collaborating, people sharing data, Uh, everything was happening real time sort of for the good of humanity. And I believe that the industry has learned from that and uh, is uh, able to move things forward, potentially, you know, in a more accelerated fashion.
1: All right, Daphne, great stuff. Really appreciate it. Daphne Zohark, founder and CEO of Pure Tech Health, uh, trades on the London Stock Exchange PR TC, but they are based in Boston, Massachusetts. That seems to be where a lot of the really good biotech companies come from.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at Matt Miller1973.
1: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PTSweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.